Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. I invite you to Luke chapter 12. Verses 1 through 3 will be our text this morning. The title of the sermon is The Leaven of the Pharisees. Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, says, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Now, I've divided this message, these verses, into three parts, each important to the overall theme. And the three parts are the setting, the warning, and the explanation. First of all, right away in verse 1, we have the setting. He says, under these circumstances... That just tells you to look up to chapter 11. You have to remember what we studied in chapter 11 back in the last quarter of 2018 to remember that Jesus had finished up his ministry in the region of Galilee, which was up in the northern part of Israel, and he had relocated his ministry to the southern part of Israel in the region of Judea. But he was doing the same things in Judea that he did in Galilee. He was preaching the same message of repentance and faith. He was performing the same sorts of miracles. He was healing the sick and uh, feeding the hungry that he did in Galilee. And the response of the people was similar. Some in the crowd heard Jesus' message and they believed it. They were saved. Others were unconvinced. They demanded another sign. They wanted more proof. And then there was a third group who hardened their hearts and rejected Jesus and his message out of hand. In fact, they accused him of being an emissary of Satan. This group consisted primarily of a sect of religious leaders called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were commentators and self-appointed interpreters of the Old Testament law. Now just before Christmas last month, we saw eight characteristics of a Pharisaical heart. Now I want to believe that all of you went home and memorized those eight attitudes and meditated upon them daily until now. Uh, But uh, probably the truth is all of us need to be reminded of the eight attitudes that Jesus rebuked in the Pharisees. The first was a veneer of piety. That is, they were superficial in their religion. They wanted to give the appearance of substance, but just beneath the surface, the truth was their heart was full of sin. He said in another passage that they have a name for godliness, but their heart is far from the Lord. They also had an obsession with rules. They took what was good, the Old Testament law, and to it they added rules and regulations and legal minutiae until the law had become a burden upon the people's back. But but here was what was more, even though they wanted the people to carry that burden, most of them were not willing to lift a finger. But they did have a desire for notoriety. They wanted to be known as religious. They wanted to be invited to the seats of honor. So they put these phylacteries on their head and made them very large and they wore tassels on their robes so that everyone could hear them coming. And they wanted 
the chief seats. They wanted the greetings in the marketplace, Jesus said. They wanted to have the name of piety without the reality of it. And the fourth characteristic of the Pharisees was that they had a defiling impact on others. Jesus called them hidden tombs. Remember that the Jewish people didn't want to come in contact with a human corpse or else they would be ceremonially unclean. And so they would paint the front of these tombs so that people could avoid them. But sometimes these tombs were forgotten and they were overgrown and people would mistakenly step on a tomb and they would be defiled religiously. Well, Jesus said the Pharisees are like that. When people interact with them, when they have conversations with them, they part company worse off spiritually than as if they'd never had the conversation. The Pharisees also had a revisionist view of history. They loved to decorate the tombs of the prophets and hold ceremonies there. And they forgot to mention at the ceremonies that their fathers are the ones who killed the prophets. And Jesus says, your generation is just like theirs. You kill the prophets. And he was, of course, being prophetic. Jesus was the greatest prophet, and he would be murdered at the hands of these Pharisees. And they had an obstructionist posture on salvation. Look what he says in verse 52. Woe to you lawyers, I'm in chapter 11, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. The key of knowledge is the gospel, which is revealed in the Word of God. And they've misinterpreted the Bible Therefore, they don't have any benefit. They're not entering into heaven, and they're preventing others who are listening to their teaching. So they're obstructionist when it comes to salvation. So those are some incredibly um, difficult things that he has to say to the Pharisees. Now remember that after Jesus publicly rebuked the Pharisees, their hatred for him and their desire to get rid of him was amped way up. Look what he says in verse 53, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. And so their attitude towards Jesus, if it was negative before, was amped up to a level that led ultimately to murder. Now, the setting of our text this morning is in that atmosphere. It is the atmosphere of anger by the Pharisees against Jesus, but it's also an atmosphere of a mob. Jesus walks outside. Remember in chapter 11, he'd been invited to lunch at one of these Pharisees' homes. And there in the home, he rebuked all of the Pharisees. They're mad at him. He leaves the luncheon and he walks outside. And what does he find? He finds throngs of people waiting to hear him preach and to see him perform miracles. Jesus leaves the home of the Pharisee and is immediately surrounded by an incredible throng. Just as had happened in Galilee, everywhere that Jesus went there was a snowballing effect of humanity wanting to catch a glimpse of a miracle or hear a nugget of wisdom fall from his lips. But Jesus does not address himself to the masses. He speaks to the disciples and the masses are leaning in, as it were, to eavesdrop so much that they are stepping on one another, according to Luke. It's truly an E.F. Hutton moment. Now, those of you over 40 will understand what an E.F. Hutton moment is. Those of you under 40 can go home and Google it. So, so that's the setting. There's anger, there's a crowd, and it's really a tinderbox that's ready to explode. And so that leads to, secondly, the warning. Look at uh, 
chapter 12, verse 1. Under these circumstances, after many thousands. By the way, that word many thousands, in the Greek, the largest numeral, numeral value is 10,000. And so if you get to 10,000, then you have to make it plural to show that there's more than one set of 10,000. So that word there is tens of thousands of people literally are gathered around this house, stepping on one another, leaning in, trying to catch a, just a little bit of what Jesus has to say. But he's speaking to his disciples. He says, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, our Lord is gracious to give us warnings, isn't he? He doesn't have to. He could let us go on indefinitely in the wrong direction and let uh, logical consequences come about, but he doesn't do that. He gives us warning after warning. In fact, every time we look in the mirror, it's a warning. As we grow older, we see a new gray hair or another wrinkle in our brow. He's telling us, you're getting older. You're going to die one day. You better be ready. And so the Lord is gracious to warn us. He warns us through our physical appearance. He warns us with our body wearing out, but he warns us most specifically in his word. And he does so directly to his disciples when he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. He does this, he warns us, not because he hates us, but because he's good and kind and gracious, and ultimately because he loves us. He warns us for the same reason you warn your children not to play in a busy street. The same reason you tell your teenagers not to drive recklessly and to wear their seatbelt. He knows that the end of such bad decisions is painful and ultimately leads to death. Specifically here in this passage, he warns his disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. As you know, Jesus was a master teacher and he often used metaphors and illustrations from everyday life. He spoke of the gospel being spread as a farmer sows his crops with great handfuls. He spoke of his message as new wine that could not be contained in old wineskins. And here in this passage, he uses an illustration from one of the most common activities of the ancient world, and that was the baking of bread. Anywhere you go in the world today, you will find people either preparing to bake bread or baking bread or eating bread. It was that way 2,000 years ago as well. Leaven was the agent that was introduced to flour to expand the dough and to cause it to rise. Today we use yeast or baking powder to accomplish the same purposes. But the term leaven is used 15 times in the New Testament and in all but one occasion it has a negative connotation. Now over the years in the Hebrew culture, leaven had come to be associated with decay, with sin, and with corruption. Now you remember that when God led the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage through Moses. The night that they left Egypt, they had to eat the Passover supper, but the bread they ate was unleavened, wasn't it? In fact, they were to clean out all the leaven from Egypt from their homes and they were to make a brand new and a fresh start once they left Egypt. They were in effect making a clean break. To this day, observant Jews clean out the leaven from their home annually around the Passover season. Now the Apostle Paul was of course a Jewish man. He grew up in that cultural context. He knew what it meant to, to clean out the leaven, to make a clean start, to have no connection to the past. And so when he was writing to the church at Corinth, he used a memory, I suspect, from his childhood of his mother cleaning out the leaven 
to tell them how to deal with sin in the church. You remember that the church at Corinth were proud of the fact that they had open, gross, heinous sexual immorality going on among their church members, and they weren't doing anything about it. They were saying, aren't we so loving and kind and merciful that we can sit next to this sinner who is unrepentant and, and go along as if nothing is wrong? And they thought they were in the right for behaving that way. And Paul writes to them and says, no, you've got to deal with this sin because here's what leaven does. Leaven, although it starts out very small, quickly divides and grows and permeates until it has become a part of everything in the whole. And so he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying you've got to make a clean start. You cannot allow sin to go unaddressed. The same is true with false doctrine. Do you all remember our friend Justin Peters, don't you? Who occasionally will come here and he speaks on Christian discernment. And he warns us about various heresies that are popular in our own culture and sometimes even the evangelical world. And he has an illustration that he uses when he travels. He'll take a, a beautiful clear glass and he'll pour an ice cold clear glass of water. And he'll say, does anyone want to drink of this? And it just makes you thirsty to hear it being poured. And then he takes a medicine dropper and he says, in this medicine dropper is cyanide. It's poison. And he takes one little tiny drop and drops it into that water. And he says, now who wants a drink? And of course, no one raises their hand. He says, what's the difference? He says, it's just one little drop. Most of it is clean water. Won't hurt you at all. It's only got one little drop of cyanide. And he compares that to what people say when they go to a church and they'll say, well, I know they're teaching heresy in this area, but I really love their youth ministry. I really like their music. And so that's what can happen if, if we ignore false teaching, it can permeate until it's ruined the whole. This is what the leaven of the Pharisees does. If it's not addressed, any of these eight attitudes that we talked about, if it's left to itself, it will in fact ruin the whole. Remember that their real sin of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Again, look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of Pharisees. So the question is, what's the leaven of the Pharisees? Comma, which is hypocrisy. Remember that the word hypocrite is a term borrowed from the ancient Greek theater. It means an actor, someone who's playing a role. Jesus is warning his disciples to avoid the sin of the Pharisees of pretending to be devoted to God, but the things of God being far from your heart. Because hypocrisy is a sophisticated form of dishonesty. And dishonesty is one of the seven things that the Lord hates. Perhaps the disciples were still unsure of the meaning of Jesus' warning about the Pharisees. So he graciously explains to them in very simple terms. That's our third point, the explanation. Look at verse two. He says, there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. 
Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Now here's the truth. We can fool one another, sometimes for a very long time, as it relates to our true spiritual condition. We can put on a smile, nod and amen at the preacher's points. We can put on all the accoutrements of piety. We can have every button in our car set to Christian music and still be dead spiritually. And that is exactly what the Pharisees did. It was a show. It was not real. It was a mask. But as with all actors, eventually the mask is removed and reality is observed. Leon Morris wrote in his commentary on this passage that, quote, hypocrisy counts on concealment, end quote. He's so right. Hypocrisy counts on concealment. That is to say, so long as the real person is hidden, the hypocrite feels secure. But the moment that the secret is revealed, he is ruined. Reminds us of the climactic scene of the Wizard of Oz when it is discovered that the wizard that exerts control over the people was really a weak old man who hid behind a curtain and used smoke and mirrors to pretend to be something he was not. And you remember when the curtain was pulled back, what he said into the microphone? Ignore the old man behind the curtain. That's not reality. Look at the smoke in the mirrors, but it was over. He had been revealed to be a hypocrite. Well, Jesus warns us in effect that one day in every life the curtain will be pulled back, that what has been covered will be revealed and what has been hidden will be known. He says in verse 3, accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Architecture for most residences in those days was quite simple. Usually the homes were built out of mud bricks and the rooms that were closest to the exterior walls were usually well lit. And in the inner rooms where they hid their treasures would be a secret room and they would retreat to the inner room when they needed to tell something in private. And Jesus says what has been hidden in the darkness, what has been told in the inner room will one day be shouted from the housetops. There is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden that will not be known. Now sometimes that happens in this life. We have all known people who seem to get away with a hypocritical life sometimes for decades and near the end of their life all is revealed and their life ends in shame. What a tragedy that is. Sometimes we are caught in our sin right away. Now, I know it doesn't seem like it at the time, but could it not be a grace of God when He lets us get caught right away? It doesn't let us go on for decades because the end is much worse than the beginning. Thought back on my childhood this week, and I came up with many illustrations of getting caught in your sin. I, I was terrible at covering my tracks as a kid. Still am, I guess. I, I remember my brother is three years older than me, and he's an accountant. And he's been an accountant since he was three. <laughs> and we shared a room for many years and a toy box. And he knew where everything he owned was. And the second something was out of place, he knew I had touched it. And I remember one Christmas, my parents brought us a, a toy together, which in hindsight was a mistake. They should not have done that. 
and we shared a badminton set and we set it up in the backyard and each of us received three badminton rackets. Well, I was not old enough to go to school yet and so every day he'd go off to school and I would have to entertain myself and within two weeks I had broken all three of mine. And he told me in no uncertain terms, don't you touch my badminton rackets when I go to school. And that lasted until he was out of sight. And I went in and I got his badminton racket. And before lunch, I had broken one of them. And I knew I had to cover my tracks. Even at three or four years old, I knew what sin was. And I had to hide my sin. And just like Adam and Eve tried to hide from the Lord, I tried to hide from my brother. Don't tell him that because he's God in that metaphor. And it doesn't, didn't really work out. But, but I, I took that broken racket and I went out to the, the side yard. I, I was just so vivid in my mind. And I stuffed it down in the hedge, thinking he'll never find it. And on my last thrust into the deepest recesses of that hedge, I hit a wasp nest. And out came uh, a wasp, and several of them stung me. And I went back in crying and told what had happened, and all was revealed. Now you would think that that lesson would be enough to keep me from doing the same thing again. But you know, just a couple years later, this time my parents bought my brother a brand new bicycle for Christmas. And you know what he told me before he left for school? Don't you touch my bicycle. And we lived at the bottom of a hill. And I thought, boy, it sure would be fun to, to walk his bicycle up to the top of the hill. And I know my legs aren't large enough to reach the pedals yet, but I'll just coast down the hill and I think I'll slow down enough before I crash. And I miscalculated. And I got to going so fast, I knew there was no way to stop. So I hit the ditch over the handlebars I went. The bicycle was bent and I landed right on my front two teeth. And I broke my tooth. And do you know, till this day, every time I look in the mirror, I'm reminded of my sin. <laughs> well, those are, are funny stories, but there's a lot of truth to them. The Lord was gracious in that he taught me lessons even before I started school that your sin will find you out. Well, there are some people I suspect that even on their deathbed believe that they have made it to the end undetected. But rest assured, God is not fooled for one second. Do you remember what was the fundamental sin of the Pharisees? It was willful, stubborn unbelief. It was not the fact that they didn't have enough evidence. They had evidence galore. They knew the Old Testament. All of the messianic prophecies that they had studied since childhood were fulfilled specifically in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They saw him walk on the water. They saw him feed the thousands with the loaves and fish. They saw him raise the dead, but they would not believe. They would not repent. And that, friends, is the attitude of the heart that Jesus is warning his disciples to avoid at all costs. That calloused, stubborn, willful unbelief. And the reason he is so gracious to warn them about that attitude because he knows it will lead to hell. It will lead to judgment. Remember he called the Pharisees blind leaders of the blind. Not only do they end in the ditch, but everyone who follows them ends in the ditch. And the ditch is hell. It's judgment. The Apostle Paul understood this, and we find this theme of judgment in almost all of his epistles. Turn quickly to Romans, Romans chapter 2. And in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul is talking about the, the tendency of the human heart 
to stubbornness and, and unrepentance. And it sounds eerily like Jesus' description of the Pharisees. That shouldn't surprise you because when Paul described himself and his own upbringing, he said, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, as touched the law blameless. But the other thing he said about himself was that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul was one of these guys. And not only was a Pharisee, he out-Phariseed the Pharisees. He was a legalist from day one. He was a hypocrite. He willfully, stubbornly would not believe the gospel. But of course, the Lord in his sovereignty arrested Paul on the road to Damascus and saved him. And then Paul spent the rest of his life calling others to that same salvation. This is what he says in Romans 2, 5. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. The reason I said God is gracious when we're caught early on is because when we continue in sin and we think we've hidden it, we are storing up judgment for the time when it will ultimately be revealed in judgment. And as I thought about this week, my mind kept going back to the Hoover Dam. You ever been to the Hoover Dam? The Hoover Dam is there on the Colorado River and it was built many years ago, millions of tons of concrete. It's an amazing feat of architecture, but it's very practical. The water of the Colorado River, Colorado River backs up against the back of that dam and has been doing so for years. And the water level continues to rise and it created a lake called Lake Mead. And Lake Mead is the source of the water for Las Vegas and that entire region of the Southwest and provides the hydroelectric power to put all those pretty lights on there in the, in the Southwest. But can you imagine the tonnage of pressure that's up against that concrete? The reason it had to be such thick concrete is because of that water pressure constantly. Again, can you imagine if all of a sudden that dam broke and Lake Mead rushed down, what destruction that would cause. Well, Paul says that's what's going to happen one day if you will not confess and repent. Every time you continue on in sin and you hide it, you are adding water pressure, as it were, for the day in which the dam of God's judgment breaks and washes you away. And Jesus is graciously warning his disciples and through the pen of Dr. Luke warning us today, don't be guilty of the attitude, the leaven of the Pharisees. But see, friends, there's some wonderful good news today. I know that's a, a difficult thing to hear, but that is exactly what the Bible teaches. But here's the good news, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus saves sinners. And let me remind you, Jesus saves Pharisees. He saved the most Pharisaical of the Pharisees, the Apostle Paul. And if he can save the Apostle Paul, he can save you. And look, those of us who have the privilege of, of being pastors or even Sunday school teachers or Bible teachers in any regard. We are constantly mindful of this warning from the Lord. I, I sit on that pew every Sunday morning without fail. And, and right before Matt's 
sings the last hymn, I think, who am I? What nerve you have, Sanders, to get in front of all these people because I know what a sinner I am. But, but here's the, the wonderful good news. The opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. The opposite of hypocrisy is sincerity. Here's what I mean by that. If we had to be sinlessly perfect before the Lord could use us, he'd never use any of us, right? Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It, it, what I mean by it is based on our own ability and goodness, none of us are worthy. But praise the Lord, he has made us righteous by his own blood. He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And the Bible says he keeps on cleansing us. I know a lot of Christians who do not share their faith regularly with their friends and neighbors and co-workers lest they be thought a hypocrite. I can't tell them about Jesus because they know I used this word or I told this joke or I drank this with them in their presence a few weeks ago. There's a wonderful word for you today. The opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. The opposite of hypocrisy is, is sincerity. You won't find Jesus rebuking so harshly as he did the Pharisees, the prostitute or the drunkard. They know they are sinners, most of them. Jesus reserved his harshest rebukes for those who pretended, who play acted that they did not have any sins. It's those that recognize their sinners that he saved. Jesus says it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit. To be congratulated is the one who recognizes the reality of their spiritual condition, that they have nothing of substance to offer God. So they come to him on his terms, which are, as we've said many times here, empty pockets and outturned hands. Jesus commended to the disciples the attitude, not of the Pharisee, but of the tax collector who said, I'm not even worthy to raise my head to pray. Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. That is the attitude that the Lord uses. I, I think of Jesus' disciples. I think of Bartholomew who came to Jesus. And when Jesus saw him coming, he said, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. He didn't say he was sinless. He didn't say he's perfect. He said he was sincere. Here's a guy who genuinely wants to be used by me. He never said that of the Pharisees because the Pharisees were anything but sincere. They wanted to be thought of as godly without having the reality. What about you? Maybe you've been coming to church for decades. Maybe you know all the words to every hymn. Maybe every Station in your car is set to Christian music, but you're empty. You've never been born again. You've never called upon Him in sincerity. You're dependent upon how you look to others. Isn't that exhausting? Jesus said to the people of His day, Come unto me, all you who are weary, tired, weighted down, and I will give you rest. Call upon the name of the Lord. Lay down those burdens and receive his free gift of salvation today. You say, well, it's too late for me. No, it's not. It wasn't too late for Paul. It wasn't too late for the thief upon the cross. So long as there is a heartbeat in your chest and air in your lungs, today is the day of salvation. Maybe there's a Christian here today and for many years your mouth has been closed 
when it comes to telling other people about Jesus because you don't want to be thought a hypocrite. Well, that's good. No one wanted to be thought a hypocrite. But how do you address that? Well, you confess it. You be real. You say to that person, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect. You've heard me say and do and seen me do things that God's displeased with. But I know this. I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner saved by grace, and you can be too. Open your mouth. Tell the good news of salvation to all those in your sphere of influence. Ask the Lord to help you, to give you the boldness to do that. Let's, let's pray that prayer today. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for this warning from Jesus. He is so gracious to warn us. He warns us not because he hates us, but because he loves us. He's telling us to not develop that attitude that the Pharisees had of hypocrisy and pride, having a thin veneer of religion, but having no substance underneath, because he knew that, that even any hint of that could grow and spread till it permeated an entire life. And as Paul says, it can permeate even an entire church. Lord, help us to be vigilant and diligent to scrub the house clean on a regular basis of the leaven of the Pharisees and to start fresh and anew every day. Your mercies are new every day. And so Father, I pray for a person here today who for many years has carried around this burden of guilt, hiding the truth cells from, from one another. Lord, help us to be open. Help us to be real and genuine and sincere in the, in the year ahead. Help us to regularly confess our sins to one another. Father, help us to uh, live in freedom and, and newness every day because of your grace. And Lord, I pray if there's even one person here today who's never experienced salvation and the forgiveness of sins, that today would be the day that they would give up on legalism or give up on anything that they're depending on other than the shed blood of Jesus. That they would come to him on his terms with empty hands and an open heart and a humble spirit and declare with the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. That is a prayer you hear and a prayer you honor. And I pray you do it today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.